All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, another QLS is upon us. As I've always stated in previous shows, um, it is fun talking to the artists, but oftentimes... I find it more fun getting the 411, the information from a different perspective. And oftentimes, you know, promotion people, AR people, CEOs kind of have a, a, a different perspective. And I guess, you know, maybe I'm secretly a suit more than I am an artist. So I, I think I enjoy those episodes better. But even with the response we get from the podcast, it's often when we talk to label CEOs that I get the most feedback. So hopefully if you're like me, this episode should be one for the record books and for a lot of you hip hop junkies out there, um, you're in for a treat. When you hear cats my age speak of, okay, now the word of course of the year is Renaissance. And you know, this isn't a Queen Bee reference, but when we're speaking of the Renaissance era of hip hop, we're talking about a specific time period Mm-hmm. In which I will say the Renaissance era of hip hop versus the classic era of hip hop is sort of when the music palette, as far as sampling is concerned, extended a further reach past the first layer of sampling. You know, like the first round was like James Brown, George Clinton, and the what I call the Wikipedia of crate digging, known as Ultimate Beats and Breaks compilation. Uh, shout out to uh, Break B. Lou, good friend of the show. But all of a sudden, you know, all those jazz records and all those boring albums in your uncle and aunt's record collection started to get utilized in this particular era of hip hop, starting with kind of in the early 90s and extending uh, in the decade. And oftentimes when we talk about the Renaissance period, usually Illmatic is kind of synonymous with that era. However, and yes, I will say Illmatic is the pinnacle of that particular sound, but from a creative standpoint that the label owned by our guest today was probably one of the most forward-thinking, consistent, envelope-pushing hip-hop labels 
uh, that pretty much led the charge culturally for the directions of what credible hip hop sounded like in a way that kind of like Def Jam was established in the eighties. I can go through. I have to write some of the names down. Twister, Madcap. I could spend an hour on Madcap alone because I thought, ooh, that's a lane for the roots. The Alcoholics, of course, the Wu Tang Clan, whoever they are. Cellar uh, Dwellers, Mob Deep, Big Pun, Exhibit. One of my all-time favorites. And will we ever release the Project Pat song? I don't mm. know. Project yes! Pat, Delinquent right. Habits, Dead Prez, Gangsta Boo, Little Flip, The Executioners. Even with R&B with Davina, LV, and Yvette Michelle. Hey, Adriana Evans, son. Yeah, Adriana Evans. Uh, even like... Well-known vets like Pete Rock, Beat Nuts, MOP, 3-6 Mafia, hey. Uncle Luke, Fump Master Flex, Red Alert. All these, all these greats came to uh, basically the, the, the House of Loud, as I say. But it would behoove me to also mention that uh, our guest uh, was very crucial also in the art of what we call street promotion which I, I guess we take it for granted now, seeing snipes on the street and seeing raps on the vans and seeing stickers everywhere. But a lot of that revolution was started in the early 90s, and our guests had a very extreme impact in, in developing that. And not to mention, I, I have to say that it's, it, it'll be exciting to talk to kind of a, 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 a lineage person in terms of the fact that you know his very father... You know, the great Jules Rifkin, who owned Spring Records, which, you know, home to Joe Simon and Millie Jackson and Fatback. You know, his father released the very first hip hop single ever, which, is, of course, is King Tim the Third by Fatback. Um, you know that if the intro is 15 minutes long, I pray the show is nine <laughs> hours long. Welcome, <laughs> Steve Rifkin. What's <laughs> <laughs> <Love's> up, <laughs> I, I used to say, if you guys could see Steve Rifkin's face right now, but... He is like, do I need to talk? This is the kind of show in which we're just finding out that we're on YouTube, or at least we haven't really pumped we're on a show. that fact up. So yeah. should I now say that, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you know this, but you know, since what episode? What was our first? Tevin Campbell was our first? It wasn't. No, we goes further back than that. Jake, what was the first? Oh, geez. What was it? Maybe Monica Lynch? Yeah. Jesus Christ, we put, yeah. okay, so wow. yeah, if you go on YouTube, Listen. you can actually watch these episodes, and I pray that you don't, because we're a motley bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Lai is glam, but the rest of us, I don't yeah. know. Mr. Rifkin, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? I'm great. Um, yeah. Happy you know, to have you. We're, I'm excited. I got to tell you a funny story. Wendy Goldstein signed I knew it! No, no, don't even, I'm going to ask you about the story. Don't even start <laughs> Start big. Go big and go home. Please, All right, go just go ahead. Go, go, go ahead. Go, start. Go, go, go. Start. I was like, wait, should I ask about the Wendy Goldstein story? Uh. So Wendy signed you. I mean, you guys. And yeah. he, she signed another artist. You know who that artist was, right? The Jizzit. Jizzit. So she calls me. Because besides that, I had the Stephen Rifkin company, which had all the street team and the whole street marketing stuff. So she goes, hey, um, Geffen is having a conference. Will you come and speak? And I'm like, about what? She goes, about, you know, the marketing, you know, it's really a rock and roll label. And, you know, we just signed Jizzer and we, we just signed, actually, I think she said she just signed you guys that day. Yeah, um, she did. And I'm like, but I need you to like drive with me to Vegas. I knew Wendy, but I really didn't know her that well. I'm like, do I really want to be in a car with her for five hours? You know, <laughs> but the, the amazing thing was, I didn't even want to hear Jizzer's album. 
all I heard, you guys had like a three or four song demo. Right. And I, I kept it on repeat for five fucking hours. And then, <laughs> so we get there. My uncle owns at a restaurant. We have dinner at the restaurant. I go back to my room and I'm just, I'm amped. I was like, this is some groundbreaking shit. And I must have lost, in those days, I must have lost like $1,500, which to me was like $50,000. Right. You know, I, I was just starting out. It must have been five o'clock in the morning. And I went to the craft table and just, I don't remember the name of the songs, but it motivated me. And I ended up winning $5,000. And I thought I won a million dollars all because of the roots. So thank you. Oh shit. All right, Steve Rifkin. Wait, so, I was, see, I was going to ask you. All right. So, so you would have signed them then? I'm sorry. I'm just going to ask from a fan's perspective. No, I, no, uh, I, I, no, no, I, I would have signed them. I, I never had the opportunity to sign. They went, right, I mean, you had the opportunity, right. Cause they were already signed. I, but. Will, I will say that loud was one of the three labels that we didn't go to only because it literally, I mean, I've said the story before, you know, the roots were going to sign to Mercury to Polygram. And we were like super excited. Oh man, Black Sheep's gonna be our label mates, da 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 da. And they gave us the contract, and three of the names were misspelled. So the contract was null and void because three names were misspelled. And they were like, send a new contract with our correct name spelled. And in that 72 hour period, Wendy Goldstein literally came and swooped down. And, you know, like we did the audition for Geffen because we wanted a free dinner. You remember Bookbinders mm-hmm. on... Yeah, yeah. And, that's real nice. Fancy. He's fancy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. By that point, we, you know, we, we were like impressed with like, wow, they have orange juice in the refrigerator. Like, that's how impressed we were with... <laughs> that was the first thing. Like, we went to Wendy Goldstein's office and guess what she had, Amir? She had orange juice in the refrigerator. All you can drink. And we're like, what? But literally, we were like, all right, we're going to do it for the free lobster and steak. And then we'll sign to, to Polygram. And just at the table, we literally were like, all right, let's call her bluff and just be like, all right, we, we need two cars and we need like three apartments and we want a full studio and a partridge in a pear tree. And she fucked around and called our bluff and was like, okay. Oh. And money. suddenly no other label mattered anymore because mm-hmm. like, it was like, shit. She's given us everything we want. So, who at Mercury was going to sign you? Kenyatta Bell. Oh wow! Yo, the anger that he had for—I always wanted to know what happened to his assistant that messed up that contract. Damn. Like he was near—I'm I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, like near suicidal, but you know, I've, I've talked to Ed Eckstein since that moment, and let's just say the building was not happy with losing nah. the roots on a technicality. But so my my cousin was head of sales, and, and this is when they had a sales department and they were right. stores. He was head of sales for Mercury, and I remember him. Um, I didn't know that he was signing. I didn't know that he was supposed to sign with them. So right, he's my older cousin, and I really looked up to him. So I was telling him that you know I had to do this. I had to speak in Vegas to this rock and roll crowd, which like I mean I was definitely talking a different language, right. and um, and he goes, we were supposed to sign them. He didn't know. He didn't know exactly what happened, but he knew about you guys. I said. I said, man, then you guys fucked up. Oh, they were angry. <laughs> they were angry. I want to skip since we're talking this, and this is 
this is the thing that I wanted to ask you because, you know, I know that, I mean, basically the first album and a half was made extremely like just just unorthodox we we did not have a staff whatsoever at geffen all we had was wendy goldstein and like seven credit cards and so um you know we established trust with them where they were like here here are the credit cards don't you know start traveling to aruba or whatever like be responsible we were super responsible but essentially we were calling out for favors from almost every label you included like you know, Steve Rifkin will handle street promotions and da 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 for at Def Jam. Like Jessica and Derek will handle that at Def Jam. Like we were literally moonlighting every label for Do You Want More? And the thing was, didn't even know you could do that. I don't, you know, it was just different back then. Yeah. But here, here's the question I have. So, can you and I want you to explain to me because this is what I never got explained to me. At least the system. Like, you remember the periodical? I think the, it was called Hits. Mm-hmm. Hits ma- still, Magazine? Still is. Yeah, they're, right. they're still there. So now it's online. It's called Hits. Hits Daily is still Double. a thing. Yeah. Okay, so I knew for us, there was there was a, a system of you break in college first, and then after the college, then you break to mainstream radio. And the Roots released their first single the same, at least we were under the impression that we released the same time that Biggie released Juicy. Now, this is what I think happened. What I believed happened was that the the buzz for Juicy was so big that they leaked it a week early, maybe like two days early. So the initial numbers of our first single, which I, I think was like Distortion of Static versus Juicy, was like, oh, we're going to crush Biggie. But what I think happened was we had a full week, seven days of ads on whereas maybe like they decided to just you know leak juicy a day early so it was like a week of the roots versus one day of biggie and we were just under the impression of like oh shit man we're going to be kings of the world like we were like that whole week it was like whatever the equivalent of of lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills and champagne everywhere only for the next week to come and suddenly, like, Biggie's numbers were, like, in the three digits, and we were, like, <laughs> at 38, like, literally crushed. Can you explain the system of how, at least back then, and I'm not going to say start with Protect Your Neck, because that's just a whole nother animal. But say if you're doing Rainy Days, like, a, a single that doesn't matter, how do you break that first to explode? And what's the importance of college numbers? So for me, I made my living off of college. So let's go just go back to you for a second. Okay. Wendy was the only one who understood what I was. I was working those records because I was doing the whole, the whole street team. And right, I know. Because, you, I get it. Because, you, because you guys were so alternative in, in the hip-hop market, I said, just don't rush this. Let this just marinate and just have the guys live on the road. Don't worry about radio. Don't worry about anything. Have them just go visit colleges and maybe even some mix shows. And that's it. I mean, I never really even saw you guys. I didn't even see a video yet. But just sonically, what I heard, I was like, remember like Diggle Planets? Yeah. Right? I mean, it was that, that I mean, that took 18 months to break. Mm-hmm. What? Man, we, we forget this. Cause yeah. Forget yeah. It. You're right. So, yeah. you know, and, right. And, Stretch, and Stretch and Bobito broke that record. You're right. 
That was on a new label called Pendulum Records that was owned by Ruben Rodriguez. Ruben Rodriguez, yeah. Right? So, and I, I forget who the head of promotion was. I think it's, his name was Steve, too. And I just forget who the head of promotion was. And I was like, you don't have to worry about radio. Let us just keep this at college radio. Brian Sampson, who was running the Gavin Report at, um, at college radio, was flipping over the music. And, and, and that's all we needed right this second. And they just wanted to take it to radio. And then, you know, it was what it was. Now, of course, the second part of that story was like we were like super depressed and thought like our lives were over and, you know. But now that 30 years have passed, it's it's almost like, you know, this this tortoise and the hare journey that we took was worth it all, you know, to kind of still be here. But for me, I just never because we weren't in the States, you know, we were living in Europe. So between like 93 and 98, I had zero clue of what the system was on how to to jump in the double Dutch rope and thrive and survive like that sort of thing. And, you know, cause we were asked like, can we do Jack the rapper? Can we do, how can I be down? Like all those things that we hear about. And we just always felt like Rudolph, the red dudes, like we, we didn't even start meeting hip hop gods. Like, you, you know, we didn't meet Wu Tang until like 99 at that, at that great day in Harlem shoot. That's the, that was like so the y'all first. Y'all never did the convention cir- circuit. Y'all never did no. Gavin, BRE. We were, like, it we was, were living in Europe. Your... Just oh. like our whole thing was like, well, you know, we're not going to be breakout stars in the States. So we better just like plant our seeds for longevity over here in Europe. And by things fall apart, they were like, okay, you guys got to come home and actually promote this record, not like be there. But anyway, I, I digress. I do want to start from the beginning. Steve Rifkin, okay. what was your very first musical memory? My very first musical memory was I was around five years old at the Apollo Theater watching the Jackson 5. Wow. Do you know what year this was? 67, 68. I might have been six. This is the third story we've had of, of people that have been at that particular Jackson's concert. In... No, it was, I, was with my, I was with my dad. So my dad managed a DJ um, called Tommy Smalls. And Tommy had a club up in Harlem called Smalls Paradise. Smalls. These are real small Tommy Smalls from yeah. Harlem Nights? That's real? I never, I'm sorry. I got, I'm sorry, I got excited. <laughs> so before Frankie Crocker, Tommy Smalls was the most powerful DJ in urban music. Wow. Or R&B music. Right. And, and it was a station called WWRL. And it was based out of Jersey. I saw the Jack and Five, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show. And then like two weeks later, they're at the Apollo. And it was, it was my first live show I've ever seen. Oh, you had good seats. We didn't or have seats were outside. We were on the stage. Of course. That's what I, I didn't want to assume. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you recognized what your dad did? Man. I, I have the feeling that he kind of lured you into the business early or without knowing or trained you without knowing. It was my grandfather. I was majorly dyslexic. I didn't know how to read or write until I was 14, 15 years old. Okay. So I was getting in a lot of trouble. And not that I need, you know, I didn't need to steal because I didn't need the money. You know, my dad had James Brown, you know, and he had Joe Simon, Fatback Band. So I was just doing it to look to get to attention. But it was really getting to a place where I was going to either go to jail or get killed. And um, my, my grandfather called me down to Florida 
where all the Jews go. And he was in the nightclub business. And um, he, he said, he, he said, um, oh. you, he goes, he goes, you got to get your shit together. He goes, you're going to end up dead or in jail. And he goes, why don't you do what your cousin Randy did? And then my, my cousin who worked at home, um, I go, what, what did he do? Because he, he goes to visit radio stations. I'm like, who am I going to do it for? He goes, your father. I go, my father wants nothing to do with me. He goes, and my father was partners with my uncle. And um, he goes, I'll deal with it. So like a week later, he calls the house. You know, there were no cell phones. This is 1979, mm-hmm. 1980. And um, he goes, pick me up at the airport at four o'clock. So I go pick him up at the airport. I go, where are we going? I thought I was going back to my house. because no, we're going into the city. We're going to go see your father and uncle. And um, they pretty much sit me down. They say, you're going to go on the road for three weeks, and you're going to go visit radio stations. So I'm 18 years old. And those three weeks turned to be close to three years, a little into three years, where I zigzagged all across the country. You know, I always had $10 worth of quarters. There were no cell phones. There was no GPS. I didn't even know how to read a map. I would just get a pay phone, put in 50 cents, and call the next station. How do I get there from here? And I would write it down mm-hmm. longhand. I wish I still had the book. Really? Yeah. So radio promotions. Yeah, there was there was, there was was no mix show. There wasn't anything at the time. Be, you know. Just so I'm clear. Now, you know, when I mentioned Spring Records, which is, you know, subsidiary of, of Polydor, was he, was your father promoting all black acts on Polydor? Like, does, did this also include Mandrell and James Brown as well, or just strictly the spring acts? Like Millie Jackson, Joe Simon? So James, my dad brought Polygram into the States. Oh, so he gave James Brown his first offer. Yeah, so, so what, what happened was Polygram, I think the president's name was Erwin Steinberg. At yes. The time. He goes... He goes, give us, um, give us James under the Polygram logo, but you'll eat the way it's your label, where it's still signed to you. So he would have been on Spring Records. He would have, but it was, it was like Polygram's first urban artist. So, I mean, James performed at my bar mitzvah. What? Mm-hmm. Yo, you can't skip that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, 13 was what year for you? What year were you born? I was born 62. It's February 1st, 1975. Ah, damn. Yeah, mustache, James. (laughs) 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 All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Out of curiosity, do you know what, at least what negotiations were just in terms of, of him leaving King? I never knew how he went from King to Polygram. I was eight. I, okay. You know, they probably, so, you know, my dad was really a special guy. Like he really like, you know, he didn't see color. You know, you, you mentioned Jack the Rapper earlier, right? You know, so, and, you know, Jack, Jack started off in radio and then he became like a promotion guy, you know, and Jack was really light-skinned, you know? Right. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. You could pass. And, and, and the whole, and the hotels, you know, they wouldn't let black people sleep in certain hotels. And, yeah. you know, my dad would bring him into the hotel. Wow. Did they know he was black, though, when he brought him in? Because because Jack could have went either way. So he just passed and, you know. But, but, the, but the thing was this. If they did, you know, there'd be two dead bodies, you know. And my father, you know, kept his, you know, his guys. Right. right. And, you know, nobody was allowed to even go near the room. Can I ask you, Steve? It's fascinating because you said, like, so your dad has been on this side of when did he start getting into music in on in this lane like in this r&b lane was it your grandfather because you said your grandfather was also a part of your process so my, my grandfather owned a club called the boulevard so okay. you had the copa which was which was like the highlight you know the the, the major player yeah but before you before you could even get a shot at the copa you had to kick ass at the boulevard and the boulevard was was in queens on queens boulevard you know so <laughs> what happened was you know, my grandfather was somebody that you really didn't want to mess with. You know, his three best friends were, you know, pretty powerful guys. Can you tell us and some of the, put, uh, the acts? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm always curious about the, the. I mean, the only person I know of this era that had muscle that often our guest talks about is Morris Levy. Morris Levy, yeah. But, Morris, had a lot, Morris had a lot of muscle. But my, and my grandfather was extremely close with Morris. But my grandfather would put you in a headlock and said, my two sons have to manage it. Oh, so Flip Wilson came out of there. Lola Falana came out of there. The Shirelles came out of there. Um, I could call my mom and I could just, you know, find out a whole bunch. So of everybody. But, yeah. According to you, what year did, quote, that level of business end and the what I what I dubbed the, the Starbucksification of it? Like, I don't know if you remember the episode of The Sopranos when. Those guys saw the like the first Starbucks, and they tried to go inside mm-hmm. to shake them down, and then realize like, oh, this is like a corporate thing. This is not like just a local mom and pop thing. And this is when they realize that we just can't 
shake you down and do business like on our level. Like in your in your mind, and mind you, I know that you entering hip hop, I don't know how as big as your label was, you didn't somehow fall into the crossfires of of what was ninety two to ninety eight. Well, I mean, they knew they couldn't do anything to me, right? So you're talking about the East Coast, West Coast thing. Right. So, I mean, we had a passive, I had offices in LA and in New York. So we, we made it clear from the, from the get-go. We're right. staying out of it, we're minding our, our own business, and if we're gonna get touched, people are gonna get touched back. So that's for all your roster too? Not just you, Steve, but like that was the roster. Everybody, well, like- no. Well, you know, so like when Pac, Pac was my roommate. Mom deep. <laughs> like, I, I marketed Pac's first record when he was just signed to Interscope directly. And he would stay with me. We would be on the road Thursday through Monday. And even though he was living up in the Bay, he would stay with me for those two days because we had a shitload of work to do. So, you know, when that whole thing started, I'm, at, I'm walking into the House of Blues and he's there, you know, and I got a bald head, you know, and he smacks me in the head, but, you know, and it stung. So I don't know if it's a love tap or a real smack, right? Mm. And he looked and he looked at me, he goes, well, you're not gonna say hello to me. I'm like, man, I don't know where I stand with you. And he goes, Tell those two little lens that I'm just doing this to keep myself relevant. I love that shit. Somehow I knew that. Yeah. Somehow I knew. Uh, yeah. Where <laughs> and we hugged, and you know, like two weeks later he was gone. Oh. Shit. <sighs> All right, we're zigzagging back and forth. Wait, I do, uh, on that note, I will. I do invite everybody to go to the t- two projects. Have you been to the exhibit, Steve, out in LA downtown? No, nah, nah, I haven't been there. It's a beyond all notebook pages, all everything. I just want to say on that note, get to know your man. Yes, I've heard. Yeah. I've heard yeah. a, a lot about this. Beautiful. So, for you, what do you consider really your your true entry as far as like both feet on the ground? this is my entry into the music business. What marks that for you? Like what year, what project? So it was 1983, maybe. And um, it was Jimmy Spicer, Dollar Bill, y'all. Shit, that's right. That is on spring. Yeah, it was Russell's first deal. And then- Wait um, a minute. Is this the connection to, is this how this makes it to Cream? No, nah, they just did that. They I just mean, knew it. I'm not. <laughs> I don't know if they knew it. They just. They, I mean, when I heard, it, I was like, "Holy shit!" I mean, uh, but it was Jimmy Spicer and Fatback had a record called "Spread Love." Yes. And then they had another one, but actually, when you mentioned the second second singles, so but there was a record on the album called "Is This the Sign of the Future" featuring Jerry Bledsoe. You mean is this the future or is this the future? Yeah, it's just the future. That, wait, that was you guys too? That was Fatback, yeah. So, oh, shit. So they wanted me to meet this old promotion guy by the name of David Clark. Mm-hmm. And I'm eight, I'm 21 years old. D- Dave Clark is in his late 60s. And he's like an old school promotion guy, but one of the best promotion guys ever in the history of promotion. Right. And he, call, and he calls me up. And he says, um, you know, we're going to have dinner with the radio. It was a radio station called WHRK, which was in Memphis. We're going to dinner. And I'm saying to myself, 
this guy's 66, 67 years old. And he wants me to go to the club with him afterwards. And I'm like, I'm not going to the club. So I find the college. So it was University of Memphis. And, uh, and I forget who the DJ was at the time, but he takes me to the club. And there's Dave Clark with four of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, motherfucker. And, um, <laughs> but literally, that's how I ended up putting the whole street team together. I would, after going and visiting the program directors and music directors, doing what I have to do, I started building my own network at just at college radio. And that was always my foundation and my base. I'm sorry. I'm also just visualizing this in my head. And now this is, this is totally, this is making sense. All right. Okay. Look, we, we've had radio people, CEOs on the show before. And, you know, I've maybe dipped my toe in the water with asking these questions. So I'm going to ask you under the guise that, yes, you know, I'm, I'm certain that the statute of limitations or the grace period has passed. Now, a lot of the times when this question gets deflected, it's usually like, oh, so long ago. I don't even remember. Okay. Take that Jimmy Spicer record in 1983. You don't even have to specifically mention yourself. But if I am a promotion guy trying to get that song played on the radio, (laughs) what levels of negotiations do I have to stoop to to get that played on the radio? I mean, it really all depends how good a promotion guy you really are. All right, so how <laughs> much like how much juice pack. what juice do you have to use? And again, whatever story whatever stories you can tell. So I am gonna tell you a story. Thank you. Right? Frankie Crocker at WBLS. Yes, right, right? Right? There was a club called the Garage. Paradise Garage? Paradise Garage. Best yes. sound system in New York, right? Larry Levin. Larry, Larry was the DJ. The right. club opened up at what at six, six thirty in the morning. Wait, what? Right? I mean People, that's when like, people would leave whatever club and then they would go to this club, you know, and it was a gay club, but with the best sound system in the world. And right. Larry was such a trendsetter DJing wise. So I, I go, I go with Frankie one night. And okay. um, what's that like? Oof. Well, Frank, I've known Frankie since I was 11 years old. Like wow. when Frankie came home after the payola scandal, I think my dad and a few other people, Mars leaving a few other people, threw him a party at Studio 54. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's and he and he goes upstairs to the DJ booth and he's there for around anywhere between 30 and 45 minutes so you know in those days you know the 12 inch you know a record would be 10 to 15 minutes long mm-hmm. so whatever Larry played say between 6.30 and 7 o'clock in the morning Frankie was going to add so when I went back the following week I was like he's he, he I just put two and two together so I would call Wendy Goldstein and say, hey, I could get the Roots record added to BLS. Because I knew, and I'm looking at the time, and I knew Frankie's up there, those three records would play. And I used to, and I took a, a guess, and it worked. And I was making a shitload of money. And I would, you know, people saying, how are you doing this? And then I realized, and I just kept it to myself. I didn't tell my father. I didn't tell my uncle. I didn't, tell, I didn't even tell Frankie. So basically you're saying Frankie would use... Larry Levin as his human Shazam. As his eyes and ears, right? So everybody has eyes and ears. Right. Like, you know, what, what's that? So Larry was Frankie's eyes and ears. So did, 
what I'm asking though is did Paola truly, truly stop? And what was what was like the the case that broke Paola, like to the point where the feds got involved? I mean, there were a lot of cases. There was something in the late '80s or the mid '80s um, on the pop side, but I never really. I'm being honest. I never I'm asking really who would be the person that would snitch and say, "Hey." Like, is it a, is it a label that can't get airtime or can't get play? And they're like, well, obviously they're playing Thriller every twelve seconds, so let's call the feds on. It, it's almost like the DJ drama situation to me. Like, who has enough time to like make a phone call to the top of the pyramid to say, "Hey, we got to arrest blah blah blah," because me, me, me personally, I think I think low markets that were probably not getting whatever they needed to get. And they were probably riding out on the bigger markets, but you're right. Who, who has the time? I, I don't understand the rap mentality. So it could be, right, I mean, right. it's only enough space, but so much space on a playlist. So yeah, if you take enough five slots, that's a problem. Did you find it? Not, like, I know there was a, a, a sort of a sea change in around 96, like once clear channel, once a new level of radio comes in which like they're now pre-programming songs way ahead of time for you, what was the the period in which your actual DJ, your personality, when did they lose their power? Like the Frankie Crockers of the world, the, the tastemakers. Well, Frankie was the program director. So he never, he never really lost his power. Like you said, I, I think when the clear channels came in the world, when it, when it became, when it became corporate, you know, you you I mean, you were trying to ask earlier. It's like, when did the mob leave the music business, right? Or well, you know, whatever. I, I think once everything started getting corporate, like when Vegas came and the the, the major co- corporations started getting buying the hotels, boom. I think when major corporations started buying the major record companies, like when General Electric, you know, or I, I think I get yeah, it. Yeah, you know. So I think that's when all that shit just got cut to the wayside all right so in your opinion what's the better era the mob era of the record business or the corporate era of the record business to me the mob era of course it was more of a creative business but then in mob era it was it was a ceiling for people of color to be in executive positions and to make decisions and stuff like that so it's kind of like right also but then the other side of that is a lot of the creative, you know, a guy like Crocker or, or even you. I mean, if you decided, like, you could have been the person that broke the roots out. I no, that's true. For radio people, it sucked. I mean, however, I will say it didn't suck for mixed DJs up until the aughts because although corporate took over radio, mixed DJs could still do their little wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. You know, I mean, they still like the program directors. So I have to play this record. So to ask, you know, I, I think the mixture guys lost their. Oh, power they did. Too. They did. I just mean it was it was a middle and in between of what Amir was talking about with corporate. Yes, but then all of a sudden, mixed DJs had to play certain records that their PDs were telling them that they had to play. But I'm just saying, you also remember if you think about it, Amir, certain DJs in Philadelphia they was getting a couple dollars for the right. mix show. Yeah. Well, I'll say now it's a little exciting. I mean, I you know I don't know how far. What Funkmaster Flex is doing now, huh. Interesting. which is, you know, like to me, this is probably the best thing that I've seen Funkmaster Flex do during his entire tenure. 
like at Hot ninety seven, which is basically challenge uh, acts to you know provide him with this. Okay, you complain, I don't support you. Okay, you got seven days to make a song and bring it to me. And it's really at least the buzz of it now, at least from like my inner circle, cats are now like, it's almost like they have a reason to live. Like suddenly their antennas on high and they're like more excited to make music now because of the pressure of flex called me out and I got to have a song in seven days. So now. Wow. uh, No, it's, it's buzzing. I mean, even to the point where, you know, we, us like, Hey, we we might get that call. Let's let's start getting our arsenal ready. Like that sort of thing's happening. So that's an interesting question for Steve because I was like, man, it just makes me. It really reminds me of like when mixed DJs like in every city there was a mixed DJ that was king, right? I mean, kind of in a way, right? Radio mixed DJ. So now I'm curious if Funkmaster Flex and people like that still have the same level of like pull influence that they used to. Like I I think with, with Flex. I think he's still, I think his voice is still something. As you guys were just saying, you know, he's on Instagram and he's challenging everybody to put out a record, you know. Um, you know, Buster just put something out the other day. You know, he challenged Buster to put something out. So I, I think it's really just in your DNA, like in your personality, you know. Flex, you know, has always, you know, been, you know, he's brilliant. Like he, you know, he's always reinventing himself. You know, you, you got to take your hat off to him. He's making it. He's keeping himself relevant. I hope this this spreads like wildfire. Like we complain and complain about the state of hip hop, <laughs> but oftentimes, like we're not challenged to really, you know, bring it because oftentimes it's just a survival game. You know, for a lot of these acts. No, you're right. But you know what? I challenge the executives too to start finding a new route. You know, and, and taking chances and get it off your ass and be outside and, and find something new and exciting that in 30 years from now is going to have fucking longevity that is still going to be relevant to something. And these executives today aren't doing that. Preach. And that's, and, 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 and that's, and that's coming from the top. I'm not even blaming them. You know, it's all about a fucking TikTok and a, and a number, you know, I, I just revamped my dad's label and it's like, and you know, my son is running the label. He's 27 years old. And, I'm like, his name is Alex. I'm like, Alex, people still got to touch the fucking street and they got to yeah. touch people, it, you know? Mm-hmm. So find a fucking way where you can merge both, you know? And that's what quality control did. That's what top, you know? And it's like, they still own the streets. And so mm-hmm. the business doesn't really change. Words change, but... People, you know, what made the music business so great? People took chances. I mean, look like what Russell did or Joe and Sylvia Robinson. You know, let, let's go back to the time of hip hop. Right. I mean, they all took chances. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? 
Ah, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I I know about that initial period in 83, but once hip-hop really truly gains momentum, what, what was your view on it? In terms of like what it, what it was in the mid '80s to to late '80s during that sort of that first golden era, what was your role in it? I was just an independent promotion guy at the time. You know, the three. You know, there's a guy by the name of Hiram Hicks who's from Philly. Hiram. Uh, yeah, and we we be, we became extremely close, and you know he was extremely close to Mike Bivens from Blue Edition, and um they were coming up to New York and I was in the, I was, I wasn't on the road at the time. I was up in, I was, I was in New York and he goes, I'm going to be in town with Mike from Blue Edition. And I was like, all right, cool. Come by the office. We came by, I guess they were having issues with their manager. They wanted to fire their manager and Hiram, myself, my dad and my uncle, we started managing Blue Edition. That was like 85, 86. So for the so, all for love period, no, nah, remember the, the I, cool t- now. I tell you the we got involved with the once a lifetime groove single. Okay, so right after, right Is after the cooling out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, and then um, what was the Andy Heartbreak album? 80, 87. 87, 88? 87, So yeah. I moved to LA in eighty eight. Was with managing new edition. Mm-hmm. And I hooked up with a label called Delicious Vinyl, which had Tone Moke and Young, Young MC. Matt Dyke. And, and, yeah. yeah. So that was Mike Ross, Rick Ross, and Matt Dyke. Mm-hmm. And then the Tone Moke video, I think, cost like $500. Yes. And there was a guy by the name of Rick Krim. Who yes. Was just Rick was at MTV, and he would just happen to be just a really good friend of mine. You know, and MTV was playing just rock shit, so I never had any business with him. And they were start. He called me up and he said, "Um, we're starting this new thing called Yo MTV. This wasn't daily. This was just weekly. This was with Freddie. Mm-hmm. In fact, 
right? I said, oh, it's funny that you said that, but let's, I'm, I'm going to send you a video with this kid and see if, if you like it. And it was Tombo, you know, and they put it in Yo for one week and then it went into whatever the word was, buzz bin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the record just took off. All right, so you casually just dropping these bombs. Can you, pretty <laughs> loud, can you just name other projects you just <laughs> just happened to Forrest Gump your way into? From 87 to I, told, I sold Lab to 99, you know, the only records I never really worked good. I mean, I, I pretty much worked everything except for Death Row. But I, I even did some records for Russell and, and, not, and Puff, Puff did his own thing. But shit, from Das Effects to EPMD to K-Solo to Q-Tip and Tribe to... Well, what's the first street team you did, though, Steve? Like, what was the first, like... The first record was Brand Newbie and Slow Down. I just, I need you to break down your whole, I'm sorry, Mir, I need you to break down your whole mind state of creating the street team because I'm fascinated from being at a radio station and them then turning their promo teams into street teams and every other record company turning their thing, their situation. So tell me, please. Your Can I add on to your question? Yeah. Because what was the year that you consider street team to actually be like a, a flag planning moment? And you're, are you saying that before then? So so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, Okay. For me. Okay. When did Brand Nubian slow down come out? 88? 90. 90. 90. All right. So 89. Well, no, I would say 89. I took my last $3,000. Mm-hmm. And I made these pamphlets. And I sent it to all the record companies. And I came, and I came to New York and I set up meetings with everybody. And I told them what we were going to do. We weren't going to focus on radio because you said you came from radio, right? Mm-hmm. You weren't playing that many rap records. Yes, the people before me, five years before me, yes, but I got you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> Power 99, no rap radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> so at the, at the end of the day, I came back with $146,000 worth of business. Oh. From pamphlet. From the pamphlet. And it was just, and it covered everything. Like, I, you know, we empowered the mixed show DJ. We empowered the college radio. Like, and just, you know, the, the barbershops, like, and it was just wherever there were a group of people, we would just go and attack and just, you know, word of mouth, you know, and my philosophy is even to this day, how many times have you read a review if it's a record, a movie, a restaurant, whatever it was, that the review is straight garbage, but the shit was incredible. Shank Redemption. Right. Really? I mean, Bad I reviews? Mean, yeah. Horrible reviews. We're still here. Yeah. So you're saying before that, like, because I, I can't imagine New York without seeing snipes of an album coming out or <laughs> stickers everywhere yeah. of all those things. So between you and Renee, who was the first to really? That was early night, you know, but I'm going to, you know, the one when we did, I'm going to give Fat Joe a lot of credit. For okay. This. So when we signed Pond, when you drove down the West Side Highway, mm-hmm. we must have spent $20,000. On posters. I mean, you're literally from, those black and yellows, right? It from, was... from, from from the bridge to fucking basketball city. Why can I see those? I can see it. That, I, that's, I mean, that that was Joe saying, "This is what we got to do," you know. And and that was just my philosophy. It's like I didn't grow up on the street. The street excites me. I mean, I grew up in Long Island. All right. So who am I to say no to somebody? Like when they have that type of passion. And the full concept of everybody wearing something similar to. Yeah. 
But like my head of my, my the head of my street team in New York calls me up one night, fucking ecstatic. He goes, I just wrapped the tenor of the Empire State Book. I'm like, say what? And I'm like, <laughs> the antenna of the Empire. I'm like, first of all, that's the dumbest thing. Like, I mean, how, you know, like you can't can really see it. Up. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because can't you can't fucking see it. So on that note, then, have you had to bail people out of jail and stuff? Because sometimes yeah. street teams go hard. I was like to say. And, they, and, and then they fight each other. It was the, like. <laughs> you, you violate the post no bills law. <laughs> yeah, like when you walk into our office, like behind the receptionist, you know, there was like five bells bonds and, and a bunch of criminal attorneys pretty much in every city. Wow. <laughs> Wait a minute. It just hit me. It just hit me. The night, if, if, if you, you older Roots fans can remember the infamous old dirty bastard moment with the Roots at, uh, at Irving Plaza. I believe that Irving Plaza was one of the first clubs to ban the roots, not because of us in general or or the fight between old dirty bastard. What's what's the thing when you get spray paint and then you you you, Tag? you, you lay a like you lay a, a grid on the on the ground and then you spray paint it and then it's just stencil. Yeah, I I remember that um oh that there was a bunch of hell on earth there was a bunch of mob deep hell on earth um oh, stencils all Steve. over Irving Plaza and you know uh, there, were, there were also a bunch of Nike swishes too. Okay. But <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I'm not blatant. You know, it was just like Oh, they okay. were just like, ah, no more rapping. Or, like, they, they actually... Like, Nike, Mob Deep, though. Like, no, for like two years, like, no hip-hop was allowed in Irving Plaza right. just because, like, of the level of street teaming. But, okay, without a college degree, in terms of knowing the power that you have with this type of marketing, because, you know, essentially, if you're in a car, you got about... 2.9 seconds to just look to your right to see something and have it stick to your brain. Were you in, in terms like doing these snipes and doing this, this sort of level of, of street promotion, were you also like designing the snipes? Like, would you know that with big pun that yellow and black will stand out? And so, so we had our own art, you know, so, I mean, they would be working 20, 24 seven. Like, you know, and they would just, until Joe approved whatever needed to get done, Joe, mm -hmm. Joe approved it. But, you know, but with the street team, to me, everybody does their research now, you know, and, every, you know, is it doing this, it's doing that. But whatever city was in, like, we knew the most popular bus where the kids were going, you know, from school to to the, to the deli or, to, you know, whatever it was. So that, that's the type of research. That, that we would doing. I didn't care about anything else. It's just where are the kids and where are the kids populating and where are the kids hanging out? You know, and and, and that and that's really all I cared about. I didn't care about radio. Every time we came with a record, I would say, if we get these five stations, we'll do 300,000. We get these 15 stations, we'll go gold. If we get 25 stations, we'll go platinum. If we run the gamut, we're gonna go multi-platinum. I didn't give a fuck about it. 
that whole thing. Or like, you know, I have a corny saying, the streets don't lie. And it could be whatever. You could be on Rodeo Drive, Prentura, 125th Street, whatever it is. You know, you just got to find your base and your foundation. So with having this 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 well-oiled machine uh, establishing in the early 90s and whatnot, why step into starting your own label? Why not, like, turn this into, like, the one thing you focus on and making mm-hmm. that the so juggernaut? You, so this is a, it's a great question. So I think I'm a multi-multi-millionaire. I'm doing a few hundred thousand dollars a year now. And I, I come back to New York. I mean, I'm living in L.A. I come back to New York for my cousin's wedding. And there was a guy by the name of Jerry Aid from the famous artist agency. And every time I came... Every time I came to New York, he would let me work out of his office. And he goes, I don't understand you. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, why don't you have your own label? Why the fuck do I want my own label? I'm good. Like, I would work till 3 o'clock, change, go to the basketball courts, play ball, go home, shower, eat dinner, go back to the office and send out my reports. So, you know, as we said earlier, my family really doesn't play. So... He goes, well, we take this meeting with Paul Marshall. I'm like, yeah, Paul's my dad's lawyer. So, you know, Paul says, I could get you this tremendous deal with BMG. I'm like, I'm good. I don't want it, right? So by the time I get to Rich Isaacson's apartment, who was my partner out of my childhood best friend, my dad's calling. And he goes, "Um, I need you to come to the house. I go, I'm in the city. It's a 45-minute train ride. It's like, who knows what time the train's going to come? He goes, I don't give a fuck. Come to the house now. And, um, he was with, you know, his, some of his people and, you know, he was ready to beat the shit out of me. He goes, don't you ever turn down a fucking record deal? He goes, do you know the difference between a record deal or a label deal and what you're doing now? I'm like, no. He goes, what you're doing now, you're only as good as your last record or your last contract. With owning a record company, you have true assets. So even when you're not doing something, it could be making money. And it was probably the first time that we ever agreed on something. And it like, it clicked into my fucking head. I was like, you know what? You're right. And I said, you know what? I'm going to call Paul in the morning and I'll go see him. He didn't believe me, knowing how fucking crazy I am. So he called Paul. He says, we'll see you at two (laughs) o'clock. And, you know, and that's how loud pretty much started. I was just curious, your father, since you you guys, I was wondering how he, what he thought about hip hop. My dad put out his first hip-hop record. He, I mean, but my dad never considered himself an a guy. He never considered himself an a guy. He just considered himself a promotion guy. And, you know, and, and he just truly loved people. And he didn't see he didn't see color. He didn't see any, you know. It's like our house was like United Nations. Right. So you guys, it was a nice evolution. That's what I kind of mean for your family. Like, you were the perfect kind of evolution. I mean, Sharpton lived in our house. I, I, the first act you signed was Twister, correct? Yeah. So it's, I'm, it's always curious to see flagship artists on these big labels. Like, you know, I, I'm just finding out that Rico Suave was the first act on Interscope. Interscope, yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> what was that about Twister? And actually, for me, I think the first thing I heard about Twister was like a beef with threats from Naughty by Nature. Like, that's what was it about Twister that attracted you to him that said i I can sell this or was it just like it's dope and let me put it out so the the record was called mr tongue twister and my staff 
was losing their mind and they were comparing. I forget who the lead guy was of poor righteous teachers. As um, intelligent. Right. Why is intelligent? Yeah. Right. And they were comparing him to and they were comparing him to that. And just it was my first act that I ever really, you know, I was like, all right, th- this could be something that's special. So and that was the first act that I brought to BMG. And we found it through my we found it through my street team and my there's a guy by the name of Jack Sterling. We found, mm-hmm. he was our Chicago street rep and he sent it to a guy by the name of Faye Duvenet, who was doing my college radio. And, and Nick Show, we were signed to call Nick Show, and um, and he was managed by a DJ in Chicago on GCI by the name of Eric DeWiz. I flew him out. We did a deal, and it, and I had something to show BMG. Let me ask you, um, why did you choose BMG? Because you know, for me at least, I, I never considered RCA as. Uh, front runner in urban music like the way that Columbia was or I mean maybe Warner with with Tommy Boy but was it the fact that they had no track record whatsoever and they offered you space nah, to I, I didn't I didn't even look at that. I just had so much confidence in myself. You know when I first was going there it was a guy named Lou Malia who had zoo entertainment that B BMG finance it was supposed to be a new company Twister was the only thing that really came out of Zoo, and they shut Zoo down. So then a guy by the name of Ron Urban, who was a finance guy, who was the CEO, CFO and CEO of RCA. Um, he was in Atlanta visiting this attorney, Joel Katz, and it was Jack the Rapper. And um, we came in, and I just took a liking to Ron. And he says, you know, I say it now. He goes, you give me an inch, and I'll, I'll give you whatever you need. So and it was like, how much heavy lifting are you going to need? From us, I'm like, I'm not going to need you guys to do a fucking thing. You know, we already we were already staffed up through the marketing company. You know, and then we got lucky. There was somebody who worked at RCA. He became my brother, pretty much a partner. I mean, Mojo Nicosia, and Mojo ended up after a year, year and a half at RCA. He, you know, he's been with me ever since. I'm curious what your expectations were, or I, I guess, yeah, what you told them to expect from this record. I don't want a penny for the. What they had to do was just give me money to make the album. And I think the album budget was $50,000. Okay. I'll handle all the marketing money. And then once I get it to $100,000, you got to give me a few hundred thousand dollars. At, at the time, were you trying to figure out how to position yourself next to a Def Jam, a Tommy Boy, a Jive? Or were no. you just going to be so underground you were the abyss? I, you know, once you really get to know me, you know, you're running a race. You can't worry what the next person's doing. Like, if you if you look over your shoulder, you're going to trip eventually. So, Ru- Russell had Def Jam, Jive had Jive. You know, and, you know, and Barry and Clive. I mean, Clive Caldwell had to be the smartest guy in the record business. I mean, he took everybody. You know, when he's when he, when he sold. But I, I never I never looked at it that way because, and I looked at them as allies because they were still paying me to work their records. And it was never a conflict of interest at all. <laughs> I had to, you know, no. I mean, if you know me, it's like, I'm going to be a straight shooter. I like, if you're going to pay me, I'm going to do the job. And if I can't do the job, I'm not going to take your money. And here's a question. Since you work in their records too, do you have an ear now to say to people, to other labels, like, I, I know I can work this on college and mix, but commercial, eh, this is a more college mix, rec, you know, like, how does that yeah. work? So 
by this time, pretty much we were on retainer with every major. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was making more money with the marketing company than I was making with the label. Right. So they, they listen to you. So like we would be part of their staff, you know, and then finally they were saying, why are we paying, you know, them so much money? Some of the retainers, you know, got dropped and people started putting departments in place, but they were still, everybody pretty much all came under my umbrella. Mm-hmm. So I, if some, you know, so like Fade, who was one of my first employees, he went over to Interscope and he actually came with the loud name. So when Interscope cut the retainer with me, Fade would still put me on certain records, you know? So I, 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 I just had everybody in place. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. All right, I'm, I'm dying to ask you to get in the Wu-Tang territory, but I can't forget. What was it about? And, you know, I, I think it's also notable to, to point out that you know, in the early 90s, suddenly the the regionalism of, of hip-hop is expanding more. You know, of course, we saw, like, the Ghetto Boys and Rap-A-Lot in Houston happen, like, really go mainstream in the 90s. And then suddenly, like, we're realizing that, oh, California has good MCs and mm-hmm. this territory and Atlanta and, new, you know, that sort of thing. For you, though, with the signing of, of the Alcoholics and Madcap, especially Madcap, I was one of those people that, you know, I, I saw like a Madcap show and, you know, the Madcap was like, 
just listening to that tape, and I listened to that tape so much, like, they were like a mixture of, they were kind of the idea of what I thought, because even in 92, 93, I didn't know what the roots were going to be. So the reason why you like Madcap so much is because of Joe, the trumpet player. Right. And he was, and he was live. Right. But also, I mean, you know, like, th- there were live elements on that record. Yep. And, I, you know, again, we we were just starting our first record, and we weren't in full agreement on whether or not what we were in concert should also be the same thing that we're on in the studio. Actually, I was I was against it. I'm like, ah, we don't want to be a band in the studio. Like, let's be a regular rap group. But mm-hmm. I heard the Cap record, and I was like, oh, all right. Between that and what the far side was doing, then I was like, okay, I, I see an entry there. But for me, or you at least, like, why were they just too early for their time? I think they were a little bit too early for their time. And then, you know, they, they had two records mm-hmm. that I thought could have been the first single, um, The Kit and Caboodle, produced by Broadway. And then right. the second record, Proof in the Pudding, which was, you know, a lot of live instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, of course, you know, the only one who really had a, and they were from Pasadena, they weren't from South Central. So, even though Pasadena was a huge, I mean, a tough fucking area, mm-hmm. it still wasn't South Central. And South, and South Central was already branded, right? So, Easy had a lock on all that. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, and, and, it, and it wasn't gangster music, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was more hippie music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I tell this to Broadway. I haven't spoken to him in a while, but I tell this to Broadway all the time. If there was a hook in the whole kit and caboodle, that record would have been a fucking monster. You're right. You're right. You know, and but the funny, the great thing now is, though, Coke, who was in the group, you know, is a huge director now. Really? Yeah, huge movie director, like, does these amazing urban films. You know, and he, you know, and he, and he finances them himself, and he just, you know, he runs oh. the board. I mean, it's it's fucking amazing what he's doing. Well, then let me ask you about the alcoholics because you know that was also an era in which we're, you know, we had our idea of what L.A. was, and then groups like the Far Side, the yeah. Alcoholics, yeah. groups like Souls of Mischief, way, way, you know, up in the Bay Area, and the whole Hyro crew. Like, we didn't know. It was like an anomaly. Like, when we first heard the alcoholics, <laughs> we're like, wait, they're from California? Yeah. Exactly. Sounding like this? How did, how did you come across there? So, Fade went to see, he went to the studio to see Madcap. And E. Swift was, um, was there. Right. And he, shit, Fade just shows up at my house like 11 o'clock at night, like pounding on the fucking door. He's like, I just found, you know, best thing you know since white bread you know and it was just like you got to come to the studio now and i'm like i'm not go- i'm not going to the studio i didn't believe it. to me i didn't really believe in the studio because i mean i, I needed only bad shit happened in studios so i was right. like nah <laughs> like they'll, they'll come not untrue they'll, they'll come in the office in the morning or right. whatever and just uh, it was a friday it was a thursday night when he came pounding on the door and they came up the original demo, they, to me, I thought they were the next EPMD. Yeah, n- nothing. I, I can't even, like, I wish I could just bottle up. Like, when you're living in it, you just take for granted that 
this sort of brilliance is just going to be the norm. So you, you know, you just, you don't take a time out to really appreciate it, but yeah, nothing will ever be the feeling of, you know, I come from Philly in which, you know, Cosmic Kev, AJ Shine, Just Def, like basically our, our version of Stretch and Bobito at Drexel University mm-hmm. would play that whole album insanely, like just on radio. And the West Coast loved them, but again, it wasn't NWA, it wasn't Dre, Stupid's just coming, right? So they had met, I mean, Ralph did a lot of their videos. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Okay, this is this is a crazy off kilter question, but only because I'm I'm okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on Soul Train right now to get the Alcoholics mainstream Soul Train play, and Don's like notorious for not like literally like I, I think there's I've counted three dance lines to make room, which is just unheard of for like. A, a real rap song that potent to get like almost that level of love. I, I was like, I, when, when the alcoholics were like regularly played on soul train, which a group of that level should have just been underground status and maybe some MTV love, or that sort of thing. But this is Jamar more soul train. Amir. Uh, no, Don Cornelius era. Really? How did you guys pull this off? We, we, we knew the booker, and Don truly loved the record. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just unheard of. It's unheard of. All right, all right. I got to get to forget, it. So don't forget, Make Room was a, even though they were from the West Coast, it was a non-threatening record. They didn't really curse on the record. I know. Like, so, so they were humorous. I mean, they were funny. Yeah, so And, that, and, and the production was awesome. That's what Don liked. Can I can I just ask real quick, Steve, at this point, are you developing what is the the loud philosophy? Like, because you, you like you said, you ain't Def Jam, you ain't Jive. We all know this. We know we went to loud for certain things, but like in your mind, what is it? So I didn't really have an A in our staff yet. So right. to me, Madcap was self-contained. Alcoholics were self-contained. And we had we did okay with them. Twister wasn't self-contained. And, you know, even though he broke, you know, we did marketing wise, we did an amazing job. We had, we flew in the guy from the Guinness Book of World Record from London. And right, we had him, I remember that. We had him on MTV and they timed him. And he was, you know, voted the fastest rapper in the world. But really, you know, it wasn't an amazing album. So I needed people who could really be self contained. Right. Okay. Right. So that's, so, that's the common. That's the commonality. And then from that, Wu-Tang, self-contained. Segway. Okay. My deep self-contained. Okay. Now, let me ask you. We're here. Knowing what you know now, knowing what you know now of the past 30 years of Wu-Tang-ology, <laughs> would you have struck a different deal with the RZA you still would have just given them their running papers. I'm going to tell you why. Why? 30 years. Me and Rizzo still talk two or three times a week. It matters. Right? I will never fight over money. So by me, I was in survival mode. I needed that plaque. I needed a gold album, right? So when they, right, I met them on March 3rd, 
at least get Method Man. First of all, Dirty was already signed, and but 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 this is this is where my head's at, and 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 this is my thing. I still made money, right? Because when Dirty was signed to Electra, I still had the marketing company. Electra paid me triple what I normally got. Ah, uh, okay. Getton <laughs> paid me triple what I normally got, right? So. I, I was good. And like I said, I'm not going to fight over money and I'm not, and I'm not greedy. Right. So I, I did okay. And, and I feel I won and it made loud what it was. And it gave me the reputation that the artist came first. You forget. I also got arrested fighting for them. Whoa. What happened? Wait, I'm trying to remember. I remember this sounds familiar. Go ahead. Tell us. So renegotiating Ray's first album, Cuban links and Wu-Tang's second Deal and second album, they, mm -hmm. they came in to renegotiate, and I'm supposed to be on RCA side. But before that even happened, me, Rizza, his lawyers, and my attorney, they came in. We, we came in, and um, we're going to um, we're going to do this together. I haven't gotten paid yet. I'm making my money through the marketing company, right? You know, we you know, we're at like a million and a half records sold now, and um, the business affairs. If she was a woman, is holding still for $20,000. And I'm like, and bring the pain is blown the fuck up. And I'm like, just give him the $20,000 or I'll write a fucking check. Like, I'll figure out a way to get him the $20,000. I never hit a woman in my life to this day, you know, right? But she says, go fuck yourself, Steve Rifkin. And we're in the 36th floor conference room. I take this chair and I'm ready to throw the chair through that window that's going to break the window and it's going to land on somebody on Broadway. I catch the chair. I dislocate my thumb. I turn around and I throw it through the glass door in, in the lobby. And they called the cops. Cops came, arrested me. It was a Friday. I just found out I was having my first child three days before that. And um, Damn. that's it. Shit was intense. Right. I didn't, there was no email. So that, this was literally, I sent them a voicemail. I sent them a, a, a call. It was, I was in Florida for Thanksgiving and met the man just did 120,000 first week. Mm -hmm. No, you know, like those numbers were crazy. I was like, you just fucked yourself. Like, and Rizzo wouldn't sign the deal yet until, you know, and I, I, I went off and it just created a war between um, me and BMG. But the thing was, RZA says, don't worry, we're gonna come back in in February and we're gonna take up every fucking penny they have. And they ended up getting a new CEO and a new president. And um, we came in and we put them in a fucking headlock. It's just that. We took them for every fucking penny they had. What up, QLS fam? This is Unpaid Bill. We'll pause part one right here for now, as this episode covers a lot of ground. Come back next week for part two, where Steve Rifkin talks about just how much he wanted to sign Akon, Tommy put hands on a certain film mogul, and his new venture. We had fun recording this episode, and I hope you're into it too. What's Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 